The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. As we open up to the Gospel of Luke, we continue in Luke's Gospel now uh, in our fourth in this series, The Gospel According to Luke. Uh, we turn now to Mary's Song of Praise. The Magnificat is what it is called. You'll see that in the heading. It's on page 856. If you don't have a Bible, do grab one, please, in the rack uh, underneath you or in front of you as we open the Scriptures together to, to both read and hear and sit under the authority of God's Word here in the Gospel of Luke. We find Mary singing. find Mary singing. Now, I don't know if you have people in your life that are the type of people who just will randomly burst out singing. Uh, uh, Maybe you do, maybe you don't. My, my mother's father was like this. He was six foot five, uh, tall, skinny, but a gregarious man who would constantly be bursting out into song, random song. You would say a word and it would remind you of a song and he would just start singing it in this billowing baritone voice. And uh, my whole life I thought it was totally obnoxious, quite frankly. Uh, because... I never knew what he was singing about because he was constantly making reference to, you know, mid-20th century musical theater and all sorts of different things. And it just, I didn't get it. And uh, quite frankly, it was like, can we please just have a conversation without you interrupting me and start singing all the time? Or maybe you know people like this who just burst out uh, into song. Um, Mary is here bursting out in song, uh, but not in a way that makes you say, stop singing. Uh, I'm trying to talk to you. No, Mary is singing a song here that, that we need to pay attention to in what's called Mary's Song of Praise, the Magnificat. This is, this is not the type of song to make you throw your head back and roll your eyes. Oh, there they go, singing again instead of talking to me. Uh, this is the type of song, quite frankly, to make your heart swell with praise uh, because this is a song about God, a song about what God is doing as He both promises and makes good on the promise to deliver a Savior for Adam's fallen race. The Magnificat is so called because the first word of the song in verse 46 is my soul magnifies, and that verb magnify in Latin is magnificat. That's why the song is called the Magnificat. And the Magnificat is sung by Mary, but before she is known to everyone as the mother of Jesus, Mary is just an unknown Jewish girl, probably of uh, mid to lower peasant class, probably 13 or 14 years old, because 13 or 14 was about the age that Jewish young girls would be betrothed to be married. So it's amazing to think about maybe a 13 or 14-year-old girl that you might know in your life uh, being betrothed to be married, and so is Mary at this time. Uh, can you imagine 13 or 14 years old, and you have just been told the most extraordinary news and we remember that just from last week, early in chapter 1, we're told by the angel Gabriel who has visited Mary that something incredible is about to happen. But it's interesting that we don't get a ton of details about how it's all going to happen, just the facts. Back in chapter 1, verse 31, Mary is told by the angel Gabriel, you will conceive and bear a son and you will call him Jesus. And this son of yours is going to be the king, he's going to be the Messiah, he's going to be the ruler of God's people and their savior and deliverer. And Mary has enough knowledge as a 13 or 14 year old girl, some, some anatomical questions here. How could this be since I am a virgin? And in verse 35, Gabriel explains something of the divine mystery that God's Spirit will rest upon you, Mary, and God's Spirit will conceive in your virginal womb the Christ child. The Bible teaches the virgin birth of Jesus Christ in the womb of his mother Mary. 
and so we believe it. The Christian church confesses and believes in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, confirming the word of God from Isaiah 7, 14, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And Isaiah said that 500 years before Gabriel told Mary, Mary, you're the one. You're the mother. It is within your own body that you will bring forth to the world a Savior. It's happening now, Mary, and it's happening to you. Now, the interesting thing about this by way of introduction is that we don't know, the text doesn't tell us, who Mary told about what she is told by Gabriel. The text doesn't say that she went and told her parents, which you might assume that, that she would. You would hope a 13 or 14-year-old girl would have enough of a relationship with her parents to say, Mom and Dad, guess what? Guess what? Uh, there's no suggestion in the text that she told her fiancé, Joseph. Joseph is told later on, we find out. But what she does do, this unmarried, peasant-class, pregnant teenage girl, is mount up a camel and ride 100 miles south from her hometown of Nazareth to the southern hills of Judah to meet her cousin Elizabeth, who is also with child. And long trips give you a lot of time to think, don't they? Windshield time or camel-mounted time gives you a lot of time to think and process about what's going on in your life, so too for Mary. And we are still trying to wrap our minds around what Mary was thinking about 2,000 years ago. But we learn quite a bit about what was in her heart and on her mind by what she sings about. So, we want to see this song of praise. But first, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures as we hear it together in faith. Let's pray. O oh, great God, we bow now in Your presence, confessing that You are the one true and living God from everlasting and to everlasting, from Yourself, the Sovereign One. And so, Lord, we, Your created beings of the dust, come now to sit at Your feet, as it were, in the authority of Scriptures, to hear Your sovereign Word spoken. And we pray, Lord, that You would cause us to receive it with faith, Faith of mind to believe, faith of heart to trust, faith of body to live in obedience according to. So Lord, we pray that as we read, mark, learn, and inwardly receive the Scriptures that You would bless us today. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now hear the Word of God, the Magnificat at Luke 1 at verse 46. This is the Word of God. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. 
So may he write eternal truth upon our hearts today. Let's keep our Bibles open as we ask the question, what is Mary singing about here and what does it mean and what does it matter to us in this Magnificat, this song of praise? Uh, Very quickly, we could conclude some things about Mary based off of what we're seeing just at the very surface level. First of all, we find that Mary is someone uh, whose, whose heart is filled with the song and the song overflows in a praise to the Lord as Mary worships God. Mary is a worshiper of the one true God. Mary is a believer. Song was brought forth from her soul as her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. It's good to sing praises to the one true and living God. And when you sing praise to God, you're joining your hearts with those who share the confession of faith and hope in that same God. Mary sings praises to God. It makes sense for you as a Christian believer to lift your voice in praise to God. But not only is she a sincere and faithful worshiper, she is also a woman, impressively so, a woman, 13 and 14 years old, who as a faithful Jewish young girl is steeped in the truth of the Scriptures. She is raised in faith to believe the Word of God as she is literally steeped in the Scriptures because what she is singing here, particularly the middle and second half of her song of praise is so beautifully biblical and rich and harmonious of biblical themes uh, that many more liberal, secular, progressive uh, commentators of the Scriptures say there's no way Mary sung this song. Because there's no way a 13-year-old has the sufficient grasp of the truth of the Scripture so to harmonize it so beautifully to bring together biblical and Old Testament themes to say, here's what God is doing and has done and is doing in the world through me. There's no way a 13-year-old girl could do that. But it appears that she is so beautifully and wonderfully steeped in the truth of the Scriptures as a sincere worshiper, a humble believer in the Word of God, as she concludes the interaction with her cousin, or sorry, concluding the interaction with the angel Gabriel back in verse 38, saying, I am a servant of the Lord, let it, let it be to me unto His will. I am His servant. Mary is an impressive young woman. Really impressive. But, for all of that, we need to be very clear about something, that this text, and even this narrative of uh, God's choice of Mary as the mother of the Lord Jesus, that all of this, what happens to her, her response to it, is not actually about Mary in any sense. Mary is not the point of all of this. She is a part of the narrative, but she is not the point of the narrative. And, and we must labor to be ex- really clear about this because her song of praise is not a song of praise to herself or of herself or by herself, about herself in any sense, but she is praising God. Notice how she praises God. She praises God in three ways. She praises God for what God sees. She praises God for what God does. And she praises God for what God says. Mary is about praising God This is not a song of praise about Mary. It's a song of praise about God for what God sees, what God does, and what He says. We'll see that in each of those three ways. First of all, Mary is praising God for what God sees as God looks in kind mercy upon the children of men. Mary magnifies God for what God sees. 
No, what she says there in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. And we'll get into the reasons for, for why uh, God is being praised for His mercy. But just right there away, this sense of magnification. Mary magnifies God. And when you think about magnification, you, you usually think about the type of magnification where small things are made to appear larger by way of a microscope. But magnification could also work in the sense of telescopic magnification where those things that are distant and seem only small can be seen in the true sense of their being of large. So magnification is not just small things made to appear bigger, but magnification is things that could be far off appearing as great and large. And Mary magnifies God in that second telescopic sense because for Mary to magnify God is to say God is great. God is infinite in mercy and infinite in kindness and infinite in grace. And my soul magnifies the Lord. It exalts God. The thing that we must understand about this is that that is the opposite inclination of the natural human heart. The natural inclination of the human heart is to think of God as small and ourselves as great. But by faith and the work of the Holy Spirit, our hearts can be changed to agree with Mary and realize that we were created to know and magnify God, to sing His praise, to exalt in His glory. Rather than see ourselves as great, we see Him as great as we magnify Him, so says Mary. Mary knows the true joy that comes from seeing the greatness of God and she magnifies Him. It's the Greek verb megaleno, which means to make large, to praise the greatness of, or to honor highly. And when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, holy is His name, she is lifting up the infinite majesty of the sovereign, eternal, triune God. And she praises Him, and that is right to do. And notice why she praises Him, particularly for these two reasons. For what He sees as He, in verse 47, her magnification is because her spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, that is, Mary is moved to song at the thought of deliverance, at the thought of salvation. Mary calls God her Savior. This is very important. Mary, the mother of Jesus, acknowledges that she is a recipient of saving mercy that someone must come and cleanse her of sin and her guilt and restore her communion with God and bring her assurance. Mary is aware of her need and Mary has been told that God is providing that need and you are the means through which that Savior is going to come into the world. And Mary, the Savior that will be in your womb is the Savior that you yourself need to receive the ministry of reconciliation from. Mary, as your sins are forgiven by your own Son. That's really something. Mary needs a Savior. She rejoices for that reason. She also rejoices in verse 48 because it says, He has looked upon the humble estate of His servant. She says, in other words, that God's sovereign eyes have fallen upon me. 13-year-old, otherwise unknown Jewish girl, that he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. He has regarded her in her lowly condition and her heart overflows with the joy of realizing 
Yes, that God sees even me. God sees me. He's looked upon the humble estate of His servant. Her heart overflows with joy in the knowledge that God's sight does not come upon her with condemnation and scorn and heaping judgment, but that God, her God, His eyes fall upon her with mercy. How do you think about the way God looks at you? With His sovereign eye, Mary says, God has looked upon the humble estate of His servant and He has looked upon me in mercy and in love. How does the Gospel shape the way you think about the way God looks at you, Christian believer? You should think about that. And Mary, as the humble servant of the Lord, says, He has looked upon me in mercy and grace and redeeming love. Why? Because God has chosen her to provide the human nature to the Messiah, to receive His humanity from her womb, to take half of His chromosomes from Mary. That true humanity will be joined to true divinity in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one, the only one who can deliver us from our sins. And God has done a mighty thing in looking upon Mary and choosing her in this way to bring the Savior of the world into the world by way of her womb. And she asks, Call me blessed. Why is it that I should be called blessed? From now on, generations will call me blessed. She interacts with Elizabeth in this way back in verses 42 and verse 45 as Elizabeth praises the Lord as Mary comes to her. She exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. And then again in verse 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be the fulfillment of what the Lord has spoken to her. And Elizabeth says, Mary, you're blessed. And then down as she sings in verse 48, Yes, indeed, generations will call me blessed. And indeed I am because God has looked upon me in mercy. Now, let's... let's Let's camp out a second here on this point because it is important. As Mary is praised as blessed of God, why is she blessed? And Mary tells us why. Because God in His mercy has looked upon her and she knows that she is not worthy enough of herself to receive such mercy as a humble servant. But let's be very clear about the fact that it is not because Mary is immaculately conceived. Uh, there is a, a regular and popular teaching uh, in, in the Christian tradition called the Immaculate Conception that says that Mary herself in the womb of her mother was preserved from original sin and that Mary is not a sinner in order to provide a sinless vessel for the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The uh, Immaculate Conception in the history of the church is with regard to Mary's immaculate conception, the preservation of her womb and the protection from original sin. Where does this come from? Where does this come from? You may or may not be aware of this. It comes from the institution of dogma in 1854 where Pope Pius IX in his papal bull Infallibus Deus says, this is what the church says. The church says Mary is immaculately conceived. Friends, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does not teach Mary's immaculate conception and the sinlessness of Mary. It does not teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. It does not teach the assumption of Mary into heaven kept from sin her entire life. But that doesn't mean that we disregard Mary. I think especially as Protestants we get this sense to say, we don't worship Mary and so therefore we disrespect Mary. Not at all. 
We regard Mary as a servant of the Lord. We regard her as a faithful believer. We just don't excuse her from needing a Savior. She does. God chose her to bear the Savior because of her humility, because of her faith, and God looked on her in mercy. The point here is that Mary, a young peasant girl of humble estate, yet a sinner, is one whom God looks upon. So the point of application here is that there is no one, there is no one who is so small or so insignificant in the eyes of the world, regardless of the opinions of others, whom God cannot look upon in mercy. There are some people who think that way and they say, God couldn't possibly give attention to me. He couldn't possibly think about me or care about me because, you know, I'm just this person living in this place at this time. I'm just... But Mary says that God in His sovereign mercy looks upon her. He fixes His eyes upon the recipients of His mercy because of His great love. Mary is singing about what God sees in the sight of His mercy. But then she also sings more. She sings more. It keeps going in verses 50-53. to She sings not only about what God sees, but what God does by the strength of His arm. She sings about her own experience of God's power, but now she also sings about this is... This is the way God works. It makes sense that God has worked this way in my life uniquely because this is the way that God works generally in the world as He delivers and saves and brings about His power. She says this is how God works. Look at verse 50 when she sings, from generation to generation of those who fear Him. His mercy is for those. His mercy is not just for me, it's It's for those from generation to generation of those who fear Him. As He does it, verse 51, with the strength of His arm, Mary is praising God for His power. The God who promises to do the impossible by the strength of His arm. Now, as we we see that, it's important that you understand that what we've already been talking about by way of what God sees with His eyes and here now by what God does with the strength of His arms are what's called biblical anthropomorphisms. These are anthropomorphic languages because God is a spirit and doesn't have a body. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have arms. But anthropomorphisms are the language of Scripture to appropriate to us, who have eyes and arms, an understanding of what God does. So when God delivers and saves, it is like He is delivering with the strength of His arms. As He regards with His sovereign will, it is like He is looking out. So don't mistake the fact that the language doesn't mean that he has an arm because he's a spirit. But Mary is saying this is what God does with his strong arms. He delivers and saves, verse 51, to describe his power, the arm of God. The strength of the arm of God as he delivers, supports, upholds. But the strength of God's arm also as he, you see there, scatters and brings down and drives out. See the strength in both senses there. In verse 51 and verse 52, the proud he opposes. He shows the strength of his arm as he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, as he brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. There's a comparison here. The people who think they are great within themselves, God brings them down. He humbles the proud, but the lowly he lifts up. He exalts. The strength of God's arm lays down the proud, but raises up the humble. See the difference there? He deals with sinners in mercy, 
verse 53, as He fills the hungry with good things, but the rich He sends away. What this is here is a beautiful picture of the Gospel itself, that those people who find within themselves their total sufficiency, and they don't have any needs, they don't need a Savior, they're fine, thank you, I'm going my own way about my own life, totally fine. God lays them down as they need to be humbled. But for those who know that they don't have their life altogether, for those who know that they are in need, for those who know they are spiritually hungering and thirsting for righteousness that they don't possess within themselves, God feeds them and nourishes them and cares for them and raises them up. This is what the Gospel is. This picture of the contrasting strength of turning upside down the world's systems of those people who are so content within themselves, God sends them away empty, but those who know they are needy, He fills them. Contrasting the world's wisdom, strength, dignity, and beauty with true wisdom, strength, dignity, and beauty in and through Jesus Christ in the strength of God's arm. And Mary is praising God that He is able to do even this. Turn the world's systems upside down. She praises God for what God sees. She praises God for what God does. And then finally, in verses 54 and 55, Mary here is praising God for what He says in His Word of promise. The truth of God's promise. Again, I mentioned to you that there are some commentators of the Scriptures on this very point who say, there's no way Mary could sing these songs it's too sophisticated. It's too full of Scripture. Uh, they are, uh, one, one commentator says, overwhelmingly pessimistic about the possibility of Mary being the one to sing these songs. But Mary has a grasp on the Bible. Mary has a grasp on the way the story of salvation unfolds, which, by the way, is a helpful reminder to us, uh, parents and grandparents, that our young ones, teenagers or preteens or elementary school students, are not too young to be taught the truth of the Scriptures and even to believe and confess the hope of Jesus Christ from a young age. Our young ones are not too young to be taught the truth and so to be able to confess it with faith and the unfolding promises of God. Notice what Mary says here. Verse 54. This kind of summary of the Old Testament. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. As He spoke, verse 55, to our fathers, to Abraham, to His offspring, forever. Mary, Mary, in other words, is a little girl who knows her covenant theology. What will the birth of her son mean to Old Testament saints? How is it that what is happening in Mary's womb bears significance for the life of Abraham from thousands of years ago? Or Isaac, or Jacob, or David, or Noah, or Adam. These saints throughout history, and Rebecca, and Dinah, and all of these women, Ruth, all of these individuals who have trusted throughout time that God would one day send a son. And Mary is saying, now's the time that all of those Old Testament promises are being fulfilled here and in and through me. Mary sees that this is the moment of fulfillment of salvation history, that the child she is carrying who is called Jesus is the promised Son all the way back from Genesis 3.15 as God says the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent and bring salvation to humanity. 
She understood how the Old Testament should be read, not seeing the Old Testament as just a bunch of moral stories disconnected from one main point, of seeing rather the covenant line progressing forward in the fulfillment of all of God's promises, that God remembers His promises. He makes His promises. He keeps His promises. He fulfills and remembers His promises from thousands of years back. And Mary believes it as she knows that God has pledged, I will be God to my people and they will be my God. The point that we should take away from this here is that the promises of God can bear the weight of all of the expectations of the people of God. You can lean upon the promises of God, in other words, and they don't break. They are fulfilled. So we should ask the question, very practically, in what way does the Lord by His Spirit need to impress upon your heart the need to trust God in whatever circumstance, in whatever you're facing, in whatever challenge or fear or failure, how are you needing to trust God and believe that He will do what He says? What difficult situation are you needing to trust His Word for of confidence, to trust Him in it, to trust Him for it, to trust Him through it, to trust Him by it? That He sees, He knows, He cares, and He promises, and He will make good upon His Word, and we must learn to trust it. Big things and small things. There's a wonderful story, uh, a, a, a London Baptist preacher named G. Campbell Morgan. He was a second generation to Charles Spurgeon. And it was in the Victorian era of England, and he met a woman at the church, at the back of the church, as they were apt to do, this very pristinely dressed Victorian woman in her beautiful dress and her arm-length white gloves, greeting the preacher at the back door and asking the question, does God care even about the small things of my life? Such to say the contrast between big things and small things. And G. Campbell Morgan, in, in something of a humility moment and in a wisdom moment, he said, Madam, everything in your life is small. In comparison to the God who makes and keeps His promises. In other words, God is not reaching out of effort to help you in your difficulty. He's not constrained by burden or, we would say, sweating under the weight of trying to fulfill His promises to you. Everything is in accord with His Word and sovereign purposes. There are not great things and small things to the Lord. They are all accomplished according to His promises. And that doesn't mean to say to you that the matters of your life are insignificant, but rather that the things that we see as a great difficulty are to the strength of God's arm, not a trouble. So we should trust Him, is what this means. Mary is singing about the gospel of God's salvation, the work that He has done for the salvation of His people and keeping His promises. She's singing her Magnificat about the sight of God's mercy, the strength of God's arm, and the truth of His promise. Listen, if God is able to unite all of world history in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then He can make sense of your life too then He can unite together the purposes of your life as Jesus Christ is magnified by you as a Christian believer according to Mary's beautiful, faithful example. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we do thank You for Mary and her faith and her example.
We thank you that she receives the same covenant mercy that we do of those in need of a Savior, a need of righteousness, in need of being raised up. Lord, we live in a world that exalts greed and arrogance and pride. But Lord, you lay all that down to raise up the beauty of humility and charity and kindness and love. So Lord, bless your people as you strengthen the hope of the gospel in us and magnify your son Jesus Christ in us as well. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.